look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a trip out west for two guests, Rich Eisen of NFL Network and Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports. I asked Rich Eisen about his favorite interview of all time. Gil Garcetti was sitting in that seat when the whole OJ documentary hoopla was going on and having a full-on conversation with a man who was right in the middle of something so important to our culture was really awesome. Also this week, I asked Jason Whitlock about the future of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. I think he's in a little bit of trouble, and I think he's been compromised by the controversies. But I'm, I haven't given up on him. I think he can rebound and pivot and move to a better place. Those conversations and my thoughts entering week seven of the NFL season coming up. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates anymore. If you want the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city, any industry, nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. All you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. Again, ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. One more time. It's free, folks. ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm here in Los Angeles at the studios of DirecTV with Rich Eisen, longtime NFL network czar <laughs> and host. And uh, Rich, I just did your show. We had a good time that out here. Fun. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I find your ascension really cool in our business because you've done it all. Thanks. You know, the Staten Island Advance. Yeah, that's right. The Chicago Tribune. And you were the sports editor of the Michigan Daily, weren't you? Well, I was one of them uh, the year after Schefter. Is that right? Yeah, Schefter, Schefter, actually the year that Schefter covered the basketball team is when Glenn Rice... 
won the national championship. Right. You know, I know you being a, an East Coast guy. Are you? A, you're not a Seton Hall guy, are you? Well, I, I lived near Seton of, Hall right. for 19 years. Right. But, so yeah. you know, um, that was you know the year that Ramil Robinson beat you know PJ Carlissimo and yeah. Seton Hall with Glenn Rice. I drew the short straw having to close the newspaper that night, you know, when, when you used to of print out the articles yeah. and have to cut them with an X-Acto knife and stick them up onto, yeah. you know, whatever you had to run off to create a newspaper. I drew the short straw to, to close the, the sports section that night. And because nobody, everybody wanted a party if Michigan won, which they did. And I remember running across campus while everybody's running to the center to party. I had to go through all of them to get to the Michigan Daily to edit Adam Schefter's game story <laughs> and put it in the newspaper. So, yeah, I mean, and the Michigan Daily was an incredible experience for me. Loved yeah. it. You know, I was a sports columnist, covered Bo Schembechler's final season there. My first game covering the Michigan football team was the the day when Lou Holtz and Notre Dame came in and Rocket Ishmael ran back the opening kickoffs of the game and the half, uh, second wow. half. Wow. And so I covered Bo's last season. I was at his final weekly um, uh, media session um, with the beat writers um, in Ann Arbor when he was extremely um, nostalgic and waxing rhapsodic about Woody Hayes and Ohio State walk, you know, leading up to the Ohio State game that week. And we all found out the reason why he was so open and just sort of warm and fuzzy is because he knew it was his last game uh, on campus. And then I covered his last game here at the Rose Bowl where, God bless Bo, uh, Mr. Three Yards in a Cloud of Dust called for a fake punt against USC in the Rose Bowl, and it worked only to be called back for holding. Bobby Abrams, who then played for many years in the NFL with the Giants, yeah. called for holding. Uh, a bow went nuts, threw his, uh, his visor down, his hat down, went ass over T. Kettle, got an extra 15 yards on top of it, game was <laughs> over. But just to finish that story, I'll never forget that day being in covering the Michigan Daily in the Rose Bowl, being up there, looking down at USC's defense and seeing number 55, run all over the field. I thought there were multiple number 55s that day, and it was Junior, Junior Sam. I've never seen anybody play a defensive game like that in my entire life. Wow. And sure enough, it was a first ballot Hall of Famer to be wow. that day. Harbinger of things to come. Yeah. Uh, with Rich Eisen here in Los Angeles. So, Rich, you just reported something exclusively that nobody in America knows. <laughs> you used to edit Adam Schefter. That's true. What kind of writer was Adam Schefter? Yeah, he was great. I remember always I tell Schefter this to his face. I remember being jealous uh, because, you know, uh, he had a special kinship with Mitch Album at the time. Like yeah. Mitch took Adam under his wing, and we always knew Adam was going places, always. So he was an excellent writer. He was mm. great. And Adam's just a, a great person. You know him for many, yeah, many years. He's one well, of my favorite yeah. people that I met in the business. It broke my heart when uh, he left. NFL, NFL Network, Network lost him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's only been a couple of times I've ever called up management to say, look, I've got to keep this cents. guy. Yeah. Yeah. He, was, he was one of them. Yeah. But he was terrific. You know, I, yeah. I loved working with him. So I, I did that at, in college at Michigan. And the other thing I did that, that was crucial to my – uh, my future was I did stand-up comedy there uh, wow. once a month. Uh, I did not know years. that. Yes, I did stand-up comedy, which made anything that I've ever done in broadcast TV or now you're sitting on the set of the TV radio show makes it that much easier. Nothing's more nerve-wracking than going in front of a, an audience. Did or, you ever get booed? Um, no, I never got booed, but I got sometimes just like no reaction, and it right. was really which is the same as being booed, I isn't guess, it? in a way, yeah. <laughs> but like that prepared me for you know live 
TV and Sports Center and things that I'm doing right now uh, to the point where, you know, I do miss doing anything in front of a live audience. Like, it's not the job of the people who work on this show to laugh openly at right. my attempts at humor. I just miss the immediate feedback. So when Adam was doing his thing with Mitch Album, I would be doing my thing doing stand-up comedy. Were you a joke guy or were you funny story guy? Um, and I, did you do uh, your own? Funny story guy. My big finale um, was something that I... I Kind of ripped off. There's not kind of. I did from <laughs> from uh, a buddy of mine who I went to high school with, who's now currently on Fox News, uh, James Rosen. Um, so it's interesting that a guy who would cover the White House for many years, as he did now currently the State Department, would come up with this idea that uh, if you remember the old Penthouse magazine, Peter, there would be these. I wouldn't know anything okay, about sure, that because Rich. you read it for the articles, or <laughs> there were these letters to the editor, the forum letters that would be about people talking about their sexual exploits. That there was. Uh, something that would be always that they never thought would happen to them. I, re- <laughs> I read those articles in Howard Cosell's voice. <laughs> that was my big That's finale. very good. Yes, very like, good. I never thought this could happen to me. You know, like, <laughs> and I went up on stage with it. And, and then the one time where I got no reaction, I just looked up and it was... Uh, Somebody brought like their seven or eight year old. Oh no, no, no! I don't have the heart to go fully into it. (laughs) Of course, my fraternity brothers would always love that bit because I would then bring home the uh, the prop, you know, and bring that back to the uh, bring home the magazine, and it was always just a lot of fun doing that then. And like I said, it it just prepared me for the live performance, if you will, of what I do, you know, what I did back on SportsCenter, where I thought everything was a joke when I first started there. And then, you know, now what I do here. So you go from the Staten Island Advance to the Chicago Tribune, and then you go do TV. Well, the Tribune is what I I, I did for just paying bills or just getting um, groceries when I went to Northwestern for graduate school. Okay. Because I worked for the Staten Island Advance out of college, Three years, uh, did that, did just news, not sports. Uh, had an epiphany behind the wheel one day when I was covering the cops beat, and they would, you know, I was like a backup cops reporter, and they would give me this walkie talkie, would blurt out all sorts of codes. And, you know, I always thought the code that I was getting, I would, it would be like a triple homicide that I was missing. Instead, it was probably like a cat in the tree. But anyway, an ambulance zoomed by, and I, I, I literally followed it through red lights and followed it. And I thought to myself, there's nowhere to parse what I'm doing other than ambulance chasing. And Schefter, and a couple other guys that I went to school at Michigan went to Northwestern for their graduate degree in journalism. And I'm like, if Schefter can do it and these other guys can do it, I want to do it. So I wow. did. I went there. So I would string for the Chicago Tribune. I right. uh, went to places like uh, Wheeling, Illinois, and other places around town, uh, Chicagoland, uh, high school football. And I would call in the stats wow. for the Chicago Tribune. Um, I, I may have written something, one or two things for them. But, you know, always put that on my resume. Yeah. And then went from there to CBS News for a summer internship that was the summer of OJ's preliminary trial. And it was the f- one summer that Dan Rather and Connie Chung co-anchored the CBS Evening News. Wow. So I worked in the fishbowl, as they called it, there. Uh, and I remember I would, I would be answering telephones and thinking there's got to be something more to do, especially since there was an intern who kept on going out on the road with her uh, mentor, 
Dr. Bob Arnott was the uh, 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 health reporter for CBS Evening News, and she would always go on the road with him, and she'd be doing all these exciting, exotic uh, news stories and adventures outside of the building, and I got stuck answering the phones, and that, that intern was named Melissa Stark. Wow. So I met her back in 1994. We were interns. Schefter and I worked in a newspaper together in college, and Melissa Stark and I were interns yeah. at the same time at the CBS Evening News. And I went and I got a, a gig in Redding, California, from there doing sports and ESPN found me at the local affiliate that by the way I've got a Rich Eisen show radio affiliate in Redding California now wow. so it's pretty neat wow so you do sports center yeah then you do NFL network and you've done everything in TV but the thing that I think is interesting for uh maybe even for like journalism students is that you've always done everything you know, you were one of the first people to do podcasts early. Mm-hmm. You, you did a podcast like six or seven years ago. Yeah, I 2010. Think. I mean, that's. I mean, no one knew what a podcast was then. Mm-hmm. So, what would be if you're standing in a classroom? Yeah. And you have students in the palm of your hand. What's your advice to them? My advice to them is be themselves and never take no for an answer and and use the 21st century to their um to their advantage and by that i mean this you know you look around right now and you see that local tv sports departments are shrinking that it's just a small small operation where it used to be massive operations same with local newspapers as well and you see that and i i hear from a lot of young um kids that you know, there's not enough jobs and they're nervous about getting a job. And that might be true. But I also wish when I was looking for work that I had the opportunity of shooting my own stuff and posting it to YouTube. I wish that there was a Twitter account that I could have had, even though it was a small number of followers that you could build up. I wish I had that opportunity. I wish I had the opportunity to be able to do a podcast on my own. I would have done that. 100% 100% I would have gotten a setup. I would have done and just kept on pushing it out and sending the links, emailing a link as opposed to knocking on the door of a news director, which I did many times. I sent tapes ahead and road tripped. I did that in upstate New York um, trying to look for work. I remember I, I sat in the lobby of a, of, a, of a station, also did this in Nevada. Uh, in Las Vegas. I remember I went to Las Vegas, tried to get a, a gig from there when I was up in Reading. Um, I sat in the lobby an entire four hours waiting for the news director to come out and take me. I was the only time I've watched an episode of Matlock from start to finish because that was what was on the local TV show, the TV that was in the in the lobby at the time. You know, now you don't have to do that. Now you can email, but obviously you have to make sure that somebody's seeing this stuff. Never take no for an answer. Just keep on using the opportunities that technology today affords. You could do your own show. You could be your own sportscaster, your own website, your own podcaster. And it's kind of exciting. With podcasting, I mean, you, you've seen it. You're doing it right now. It's, it's not as if you don't have enough to do in your, your, right. in your career, in your life. You've got a lot going on. But it's a forum in which you can have conversations like I this. think here's the reason why I've really grown to love this. Would I ever have 37 minutes with Drew Brees during the season Shh, nope. just to talk to him? But – 
And I, I basically tell people a lot of times when I'm going to do the podcast, it'll be 20 minutes or as long as you want it to be, you know. But, I mean, Drew Brees, we're talking about his son and the importance of playing flag football, why he thinks flag football is so important, uh, so that you can actually learn how to love football before you start getting hit, you know, and before it starts to get really physical. And so... My whole point about podcasts and why I think it's so interesting for the future is everything now is a knee-jerk thing. It's 140 characters. It's, it's everything is so fast. I mean, I still think there's a place to have a conversation well, with somebody. Uh, let me tell you, man, that's always been my philosophy as that in this day and age, as you point out, of 140 characters, hot takes – split-screen arguments that have hashtag battles and things like that, that nothing trumps a good conversation. It really does. You know, and look, I, I know I'm, I'm doing a sports talk radio show. I'm on a hundred-some-odd uh, sports talk radio affiliates coast-to-coast, coast. and I have a lot of people who are sitting in the seat in which you're currently sitting right here on this set who are, quote-unquote, celebrities, right, from – I've been fortunate to have movie stars, TV people, and other people who are uh, up-and-coming actors and actresses and whomever. And I think having good conversations with them, even though it's not about what's going on with the left fielder in this situation, why mm -hmm. is this quarterback struggling? You know, it's a conversation about fandom and about pop culture. If the conversation is good, I want to have it, and I think people are up for listening to that as opposed to an argument where there's no gray area. There's no nuance anymore. And that's part of the reason why I didn't want to do sports anymore, Peter, is that towards the end of my tenure at ESPN, it was no longer a show about what happened in sports. It was all about why something happened in sports because you were already assumed to have seen what happened yeah. or learned about what happened, that you're coming to Sports Center to find out why something happened. And in order to make sure that the viewer is serviced about why something happened, the analyst is forced to take a position and then sometimes to make sure that that position is um, in some way, shape, or form more crisp they'll have another person on to have the exact opposite yeah. position. And then my role sometimes, as a host was now a crossfire role, and that's not why I got into sometimes, sports center. Sometimes people will have opinions that they don't really feel. I mean, that they don't really believe and, in. And that's why I... And that's I, madness. And, and that's part of the reason why when I was first given an opportunity to have a show like this one, again, the, 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 the TV radio simulcast, is I did pause for a second because I don't... I don't it doesn't strike me that um, when I'm asked about what I do for a living, opinionator is not one of the first things that leaps right. to mind. And I understand that that's the currency of sports talk radio. So when I have a take or an opinion, it it's what I believe. I'm never going to manufacture. I just can't do it. I won't do it. I don't want to do it. That's not the way I want to be paid. That's not what I want to, you know, get through the day. I always thought it was amazing that newspaper columnists, I mean, let's say – Dick Young, back when you probably he'd have been on part the know. well, not part the part the interruption. I think is an outlier in the in, in right. A great it is, version. but I mean, he'd have been on the around the, the, the horn, around the horn. But With my Dick point, Young. people who don't but know he Dick told Young, people to go f off. <laughs> Dick Young was this sports columnist in New York that when I was growing up, he was. I don't know, probably 65 by then, but he was famous for a long time. But I couldn't believe it when I would read the papers. 
as a young kid, I could not believe how every day he had a strong opinion about something. Well, I know. That's impossible. How can you have a really, you wake up on Tuesday and you say, I have a strong opinion about this in the NFL. I could see having one or two a week, but every day? You could say he was the Skip Bayless before there was a Skip Bayless. That's a very hey, good I know point. A lot, I know a lot of diehard Seaver fans that think he ran him out of town. Dick yeah. Young ran Tom yeah. Seaver out of town. But, you know, that. That's why, though, like I said, you know, I will always have an opinion on something that matters to me or that I truly believe. I'll never try and force it. Uh, but the reason why I am doing a show like I am doing is, you know, I've done the suited and booted thing on Sports Center. Game day morning, I love. I love the guys that I do game day morning with. I consider them all great friends. Like I, I know, I know them. They know me. Uh, Michael Irvin was at my baby naming and my wedding. Mariucci's red green eggs and ham to my children. Marshall Falk is known as Uncle Marshall in my household. I mean, for real, love these guys. Love what I do, and I do love uh, the old school sort of highlight driven. Uh, host, traffic cop-driven type show. But I also want to do a show where I can have conversations like what we're having right now. I mean, you did three segments on my show today, you know, and that's that's part of the reason why I love having a three-hour show. Whereas normally, though, Drew Brees comes on my show and I have to have him on the phone or maybe I get him for just 10 minutes in a sit-down, one-on-one. A podcast, he understands, we're going to get into more stuff. It's going to be leisurely. I've got 30 yeah. minutes, 40 minutes, and it's more laid back. And the thing I also love about a show like the one that I'm doing, and also with you podcasting, you have the best of both worlds in, in this day and age. And by that, I mean this. You are part of a live TV broadcast with NBC, mm-hmm. and that is also DVR-proof type broadcast, Okay. You need when you're doing your stuff on NBC, it's live, it's current, people have to watch it, it's DVR proof, which is what you want in the 21st century. But you also in the 21st century need something on demand. This podcast is somebody that will just, okay, I saw this podcast from Peter King, I love listening to it every week. I'm gonna put on my phone, I've got a train ride coming up later today, I've got a plane ride coming up two, three days from now. Gotta have that, gotta have that, you gotta have on demand. And if you're lucky enough to have DVR proof broadcasting, gotta have that too. I'm lucky enough to have it. You're lucky enough to have it. And that's that's what you need. Another thing I would tell kids in the 21st century is trying to have a little bit of both. The on-demand is the way it's going. The show, like I said, the Rich Eisen show is available on the NFL Now app. There's more. This is, you know, we're on the campus of DirecTV, but you see the AT&T symbols everywhere. People are going to be watching stuff on their phones or their tablets or taking it and putting it towards their television by connecting it, you know, that's the way this this world's going. So have, having this and being able to have a good conversation at the same time, I, you can't beat it. Can't beat it. This is the MMQB Podcast. Movement Watches was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. Their goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers, In 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Movement Watches start at just $95. If you are going to buy a watch at a department store, you're looking to spend at least $400 to $500. You see, Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. Now here's the best part. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com slash mmqb. 
That's mvmtwatches.com slash mmqb. You know what I love about these watches? Such a clean design. I love simple watch faces. And anybody will tell you, once you put one of these watches on, you will be getting compliments all day long. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash MMQB. That's mvmtwatches.com slash MMQB. Join the movement. With Rich Eisen on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So let's get into a few football things. But first, I've always wanted to ask people who do this show, I always ask them, what's your favorite interview of all time? Oh, wow. Jeez. (sighs) Man. um, Gosh, what's my favorite interview that I've ever conducted? I don't know if I have a favorite you know, we've had, I've I had Jim Brown here for a whole hour. That was incredible. You know, one that you were kind enough actually to point out in, in your column, uh, Gil Garcetti was sitting in that seat when the whole OJ documentary hoopla was going on and having a full-on conversation with a man who was right in the middle of something so important to our culture and so important to our country what was going on in our world to be able to sit down with him and have a full-on conversation with him i mean my day i graduated from northwestern was the day of the oj high-speed chase wow i remember exactly where i was i was at a post northwestern graduation party at at a restaurant in chicago where i was excited to be in this restaurant because the knicks were playing the Rockets in a a big huge nba finals game and i'm a big nick fan from new york or before the knicks you know went in a different direction but to be able to sit here with gil garcetti and have a full-on conversation about that was really awesome i mean mike tyson's been on this show celebrity wise brian cranston and matt damon i loved having those guys on matt mcconaughey is a big redskins fan i enjoyed that will ferrell um i'll tell you one interview that was really good, and it's the only time I've ever heard you. I thought you were going to genuflect. That was a Vin Scully. Yeah, I mean, I mean, your Vin like, Scully interview was really, really fun. Thanks. It was very educational, and the reason why I thought it was educational is that you allowed him to tell stories. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not doing my job if you don't have the greatest storyteller, perhaps of our profession ever tell the stories hey Vin listen to me talk you know (laughs) that's part of the way that I view my role right is that my job is to draw something out of an interview subject or let the person speak I don't need I'm not doing this to let you know how much I know I'm doing this to let you know how much the interview subject knows and I want storytelling John Miller came in here from the Giants spectacular and i love when i see on twitter and people react to these interviews saying i never knew that guy was so funny and so personable yeah. you know getting I, I wanted to make sure john miller told the stories about uh, uh you know a couple of things number one vince scully do his vince scully impersonation gotta have to make sure he did that and he did it in japanese off the top of his head couldn't have been funnier <laughs> you got to seek that one out couldn't have been funnier as well as you know i was in the uh i, I w- was working uh, um at SportsCenter when John was, you know, uh, calling games for ESPN on Sunday Night Baseball. And um, this is my favorite uh, story, John Miller, that when I got to call baseball games, very rarely did I get out of the SportsCenter studio to do this. 
Um, so I got to call my first ever baseball game, which turned out to be, God bless it, San Diego versus the Expos in San Diego, where it was scoreless through nine. Wow. Yeah. Scoreless through nine. And Ryan Klesko with a base hit in the 10th finally ended it. So there was a lot of tap dancing that I needed to do. But I, before it, I called up uh, John. And I'm like, look, John, I'd love to pick your brain. He said, no problem. So here's the scoop. When I'm telling a story and balls hit, let's say the ball then hits the bag, bops up in the air, a triple play starts. Like, what do I do about my story? Like, do I stop? And he goes, here's what I tell people about this. You're telling a story to your friend. The most beautiful woman in the world walks in. What do you do? You and your friend look at the beautiful woman. You stop telling the story. Nobody bats an eyelash. It's no big deal. You just tell, just stop, recognize the woman in the room, go back to telling the story. I'm like, totally get it. Totally understand. <laughs> Cut to about 12 years later. My wife calls me up, friend of hers from New York. Um, this is about five years ago. Says, how would you like to have dinner tonight with us and Donald Trump? Now, I grew up in New York City. I know exactly who Donald Trump was. This is before all the politics. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll have dinner with Donald Trump. No question about it. There we are at dinner. Donald Trump is telling one of his million stories about his beautiful acreage and his golf course and all his business. And he's telling the story. And right behind me and my wife and everybody else, some six foot four brunette walks in the room. <laughs> and he goes, wow, stops telling the story. She's beautiful. We all looked at her. Then look back at him. He finished his story. <laughs> <laughs> Just I, the way John Miller I've said. I've never seen it put into real-time practice before. <laughs> and it was Donald Trump is the one who did it. And I called, you know, I told John when he was here. I'm like, John, you're right. We what didn't was, bat an eyelash. What was dinner with Donald Trump like? Uh, it was him talking about his, uh, seriously, his beautiful golf course, his beautiful this, his beautiful that. It was everything that you would expect it to be. I thought it and, would be a lot more about football. No, he's I mean, a huge he didn't know, football no, guy. I know too. he is, but no, he really didn't bring that up much because I think he, might, he knew that I might bring up the three dollar check that the USFL <laughs> got back in the day. But you know, um, at any rate, uh, reason why I brought all that up is just it's my job to let the storytellers tell, tell the, the stories. Story. Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate you saying that about the Ben interview, though. We're with Rich Eisen in Los Angeles. It's the MMQB podcast with Peter King. A few minutes left, uh, so Rich. What do you think is the most significant or troubling aspect of the NFL that the league needs to get on top of so that you make sure that moms 5 and 10 and 15 years from now will let their kids play football? Well, obviously, making sure that the game is as safe as possible, that's number one. And then number two, I just think it's an overarching sensibility that comes from the league ownership and everybody that they understand what the fan wants and that they truly are about making sure it's not just the viewing experience at the game just understand that the fans get heard and I think by that I mean that the fans feel like they're not being taken advantage of or taken for granted. It's the most important thing. Not advantage of. Although some people who have preseason tickets who think that they can should rightfully be, say that. Okay. And right. Should say that. But not taken for granted. Right. Right. And that that it shouldn't be taken for granted. Okay, you'll come back after we spend an entire off season about Deflategate. 
or you'll come back after there's an entire conversation about Ray Rice and the way all that went down, that fans don't feel that they're taken for granted. And if they feel like they're taken for granted, they might feel like their kids won't be really safe because they feel like the NFL's not on top of that. All I know is this, okay? The times that I'm around the NFL front office and people who are in charge, they really do wring their hands over a significant injury a la now that Dennis Bird just recently passed away right. like that. They really, really do. If you recall the last time that the, the uh, you can recall, I think, from your time as being in part of the NFL as long as you have been, the time that to me the culture change truly hit, for the lack of a better phrase, was that weekend when Muhammad Massaqua got blew up by James Harrison. Right. And Brandon Merriweather went top rope on Todd Heap. And was that the Eric Legrand weekend? It was yeah. the Eric yeah. Legrand weekend. And then there was one other hit where Deshaun Jackson didn't realize the defense he was running into and kept running across the middle and got blown up right. by, uh, I think, Dante Robinson. That's of right. Atlanta. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Dante Robinson blew him up. And Marshall Falk went on game day morning the next day and said, hey, look, next week, say, that was really on Deshaun Jackson. He should know he needs to sit down as a receiver. He doesn't yeah. know the defense he's running into. But all three of those hits took place on the weekend. Eric Legrand got I paralyzed. And then yeah. all of a sudden, a new emphasis was placed during the season, which you also know is very rare for the NFL to mid-season have some form of a, of a, a change of rules emphasis. And I do believe that is when really the league started taking what was happening in a different manner than before. And I know everybody, and I've had conversations with the commissioner with nobody around. Nobody around. I mean, so he's not having to put on any airs. Or, I mean, he's genuinely, and I know people might think this differently about the NIH study and all the stuff that Congress has said about the NFL. I've seen it. They're genuinely concerned about health and safety. You're seeing it now. It just takes a while for this stuff to, to, to get into place. I was at that Thursday night game that Colt McCoy got blown up and right. worked his and just strolled back in the game himself. And then, you know, with Case Keenum last year, and then this year with Cam Newton not being pulled off the field. Now you're seeing that happening throughout NFL games where you're seeing players – they're being pulled off the field, left, right, up, and down. So when it all comes down to it, the player safety issue is one thing, and the kid safety issue is is all worked into one. But I think the overarching view is that fans feel that the NFL doesn't take them for granted. And I take that as a serious part of my job, you know, being somebody who's on the NFL network every single week and every single important event that the fan who tunes in knows that they're going to get it straight. They're going to hear it from Marshall and Irvin and Kurt and Mooch, who are never told what to say. Neither am I, by the way. I could tell you many stories during the lockout where I was told to say what you need to say. Never muzzled. Um, that said, all of that said is that fans need to feel that they right. are being protected as consumers as well as people who want their kids to play the sport. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. Football's back. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to find tickets for the games you want to see up close and in person this season. There's nothing like being in the stadium for the biggest plays of the year. 
And with SeatGeek, it's never been easier to get the seats you want for a great value. SeatGeek has the best deals on every ticket in the house, wherever you want to sit, whether that's the 50-yard line, the club seats, or the upper deck. Now pay attention to this, because it's really important. My listeners will get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's right, 20 bucks free, right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier than this. Download your free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MMQB today. Finishing up with Rich Eisen of NFL Network. So, Rich, I struggle with this sometimes. I asked Arthur Blank on my training camp trip this year. We talked about this for a long time. Can Roger Goodell survive? There seems to be such negativity, and not just in the six-state region of New England, mm-hmm. about Roger Goodell, but around the country. Not with the owners, certainly, but around the country. So from the vantage point that you look at, obviously you work for the NFL. You're not going to say, yep, Goodell's gone. But <laughs> well, tell I me. No, I mean. Tell me, just tell me in your mind if, do you see Goodell doing this job well into the future? Or is the negativity around him so great that at some point he's going to wake up one day and say, man, I have had enough of being the American punching bag. All, all I know, well, look, I, I don't ever want to presume to think or put words in in the commissioner's mouth or any sport I might add let alone the one that obviously I'm I'm involved in all I know is what I see you know in person from the guy who's told me over and over again say what you want to say and if anybody ever tells you that you can't say this you call me to the guy who called me up once during the lockout when I pre-taped an interview with him and 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 we had to bust the interview as the use the TV phrase because something went wrong technologically and I re-asked, uh, I, when we started again, I didn't ask the difficult question about uh, the lockout that caused him to go, wow, you know, that's an interesting first question, as he said. And I re-asked it later in the interview when we retaped it as opposed to starting off with it again. Mm-hmm. I switched up the order just to switch it up. And he sent me an email saying, hey, I, I just want to let you know if you switched up your order because you thought I was upset or I say, oh, wow, that's an interesting question – you could still say whatever you want to say. And this is during the nuclear winter possibility of a lockout. Right. To a guy that I've, I've been around on a golf course, to a guy that I've been around other people, uh, who is as personable and cool as they come, that NFL fans would love to actually have a beer with this guy. I've seen this, okay? And I've also seen him at the draft where he is booed mercilessly. The whole country hears it. And he hears it too. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen that, and then I've seen him minutes after being booed go into the stands, the fans, into the crowd, and everybody wants to take a picture with him and get his autograph. It's the oddest thing I've ever seen, <laughs> where collectively he's despised, and individually, I guess people don't go up to people saying, hey, I hate your guts, usually, but individually, it's a it's kind of a different story. It's a huge conundrum. But I think it's something that personally, you know, if you ever pulled him aside, you know, does it bother you? You know, I guess he's human in that regard. But long term, I think he does loves what he does and loves what he does. And But I would love to see a strategy from the, the NFL office where, 
you know, uh, there's a lot of I feel your pain. Like a little, you know, they right. did hire Bill Clinton's guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lockhart is there. Just a little bit I feel your pain. I think yeah, the, go big a question, long way. the big question is I wonder if a guy like Joe Lockhart is ever going to be able to, like when Bill Clinton had his problems with Monica Lewinsky, right. he said in an understated way, what basically happened yes. is that Joe Lockhart determined what happened next and determined how they were going to do the damage control. Right. In my opinion, this is just my opinion because I don't know, neither of these people have told me this, but I think Roger Goodell determines how the damage control is going to be handled. And I don't think Joe Lockhart has as much control over Roger Goodell, honestly, as he had over Bill Clinton. And I know that sounds weird because, and it doesn't mean control over, but I mean probably influence, influence yeah. is, a, I, is I, a better way I to say it. I don't know. Like I said, you would know better than, yeah. than, than I would. You're there on the East Coast, probably in the NFL offices more than I am. I'm out here on the left coast trying to be the tip of the television spear. You kind of you kind of like being out here, don't you? I do love it out here. <laughs> I'm a native New Yorker, you know, born in Brooklyn, raised in Staten Island, and you know, when I go back to New York, I feel like I've never left it, and I love the convenience. I love the 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 hum and the pulse of the city. Love it, but I love it out here, man. I just love living out here. My kids love living out here. My wife and I love it out here. Yeah. Last question for Rich Eisen. So, Rich, America wants to know. Oh. <laughs> how is it? Yes. And could it be through performance-enhancing drugs? Mm-hmm. That your forty time mm-hmm. has actually gone down mm-hmm. as you've gotten older, because well, isn't it true mm-hmm. that you ran your fastest forty time yes. this year? Yes. Um, yes. Now my forty times began getting faster after I got out of actual, literally dress up, laced up dress shoes. Okay. Okay. I used to do it truly as I was sitting on the set. That's how it started uh, when Terrell Davis and I were at the O. Five, 05 combine right. and uh, we were bored getting ready to tape NFL total access about an hour long break and I turned to him and I'm like how fast do you think I can run the 40 and he goes right now I'm like yeah right now like this and he just laughed and I said Let me go ahead and you keep laughing and I went down and did it had no idea that there was somebody in the truck hitting record and that uh, James Lytle was the name of the uh, steady cam operator he just shot it I didn't know he shot it and they surprised me with it on total access that night and uh, that was a six seven seven, and I kept doing it in dress shoes. And then one year, I, I blew out my hamstring, or as Mike Mayock screamed out, "There's a sniper in the dome!" It's like <laughs> shot, me with a shot. But anyway, long story short is, so I started wearing, um, to make sure that I wasn't going to get hurt. There's two things that I'm concerned about: it is that I'm a going to get hurt, or b it's going to jump the shark. You know, no longer be fun. So that alone will get you faster, right? But after that, though, I have gotten faster. And the only reason why I could tell you, Peter, is that the heart that beats inside, you can't teach it. You Either wanted it, baby. It I do. You wanted Ask it, baby. Ask Mayock when you're around him next time. <laughs> Ask anybody who I work with at the combine. I really do want it. I really want it so bad. Do you, you know? train for it before the thing? No, I think part of that is, you know, my wife is always after me. Like, why aren't you training for it? You know, because she's afraid of many different things. She's just trained for it. I'm like, but no, the idea of it is that I'm just like a dude who's going to go out at the combine. I don't want to look like I'm practiced or rehearsed or anything. I'm just going to go as myself out there and do it. You know, the minute I take it too seriously, I'm concerned it will be jumping the shark, you yeah, know. Yeah. But this year, I was convinced get some help because Dion's been after me for years about my start. He goes, that's where most of it's gone. 
the time goes that I'm get out of my stance is terrible. So this year, Brandon Marshall helped me out. He wow. offered to help me out, and we went to and we shot it for our show. We went to a spot in Malibu out here. And he gave me some tips, and it shaved off at least half a second. Wow. I mean, I mean I've had so many people trying to give me tips throughout the years and went in one year out the year. Otto Bolden, for crying out loud, gave wow. me some tips about six combines ago. But So my start got better this year, and um, you know I'm trying to stay in shape as best I can and just keep on doing it as long as you know I'm, I'm upright and it's somewhat decent. Now we're raising money for charity for – Last two years, it's been for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So that's it's good. all good, man. Rich, thanks so much for joining me on the Peter King Podcast. Always, anytime. It's the MMQB Podcast. Hey, everyone, listen up. You don't want to miss this. Make sure you remember these four letters, MMQB. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like my podcasts. Listen when you want, when it's convenient for you. So, why are you still making those time-consuming trips to the post office when we know how busy you are just running your business? When you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do now right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. You can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Now here's the part I told you to remember. Right now for my listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code MMQB for this special offer. A four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MMQB. Don't forget the microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com and enter MMQB. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I am at the Fox Sports studios with Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports, who's had what you might call a pretty interesting career in the news media. Also had a very interesting career as a football player. I do want to, I'm actually going to start with you as a football player, but I appreciate you joining me on this silly expedition out to Los Angeles. I love Los Angeles. I think you'll love Los Angeles. I'm sure you've been out here plenty, but now the NFL's back, you've got a reason to visit us more often. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I got to hear about Jason Whitlock the Ball State football player, and Jason Whitlock, sort of the big high school football player who really got into the game and just loved football as a kid. Yeah, I, I was someone, my passion for football, I think, started in first or second grade. My brother was on a football team, Little League football team, my older brother. In, in Indiana. In Indianapolis. He didn't like football. I went to every practice and would beg to play on the team. He's three years older than me. They wouldn't let me play on the team. But my brother didn't like football. I loved it. There's pictures of me. I would wear a long trench coat and try to dress like Tom Landry on the sidelines. <laughs> uh, did you have my, a fedora? No, but I did have the trench coat, and there's like a famous picture. That's of why you wear, I have all the funny yeah. hats now. Yeah. Uh, and so my love of football just started at a very early age. 
And then I just uh, went to a great high school that at the time had very good football. But, uh, you know, myself and more importantly, Jeff George took our high school football program to a whole nother level. We won a state championship in 1984. I was the captain of that team. Jeff came back the next year, and they won it again, back-to-back state championships. And I think since 1984, we've probably won another eight state championships and put a bunch of kids in Division One football and a few more in the pros. We got Sheldon Day now with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Mm-hmm. He's from my high school. Uh, but <clears throat> And then when I got to Ball State, uh, I was an idiot, to be quite honest with you, Peter, because – and, and I say this in all seriousness, I didn't know anything about college. No one in my family had gone off to college. So literally what I knew about college was the movie Animal House. And so mm-hmm. I signed a football scholarship, but in my mind, I'm going off to have this Animal House experience. And I run into the business of college football, which I didn't really understand. And I ran into coaches that were like, man, you're our top recruit. And I was was an all-state football player. I was very good. They loved me, but I didn't take football nearly as seriously as I should have, especially my first two years at Ball State. And I got into a lot of trouble. I was a problem for the coaches to handle. I was an outspoken guy like I am now. Uh, But I didn't get it. And then in my next two years, got a new offensive line coach. I played a lot, started. We had a good team play. Bernie Parmalee to play with the Dolphins was yeah. one of my teammates. Uh, a few other guys on our team that uh, played in the NFL had cups of coffee, but Bernie played 10 years. And, you know, at that time, the MAC, really good players came through there. And they still do. But, like, John Offerdahl, one of the greatest football players I've ever seen, he came through the MAC at that time. And when we played Western Michigan, they had a. He was a Western Michigan Bronco. Yes, he was. Early on, and then late in my career, they had Joel Smingy that was the defensive end of the Jaguars. Terry Crews, the actor that was in the NFL for a while. Those guys were bookend defensive ends for Western Michigan. So, anyway, I was an underachiever in college football. I was someone that, you know, by the time I figured out the business of football, I'd kind of fallen out of love with playing the sport as much. And I, I was more into wanting to be a journalist. And so actually, Was there a journalism school at Ball State? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at that t- it's a great journalism school now. At that time it didn't have the greatest rep it didn't have a bad reputation, but it wasn't Ohio U or Northwestern or Mizzou or any of these schools. Uh but yeah, we had a journalism program and so my fifth year of school I did not play football to the disappointment. And actually, it turned into addition by subtraction because they won the MAC without me the next year. But <laughs> I started my career as a journalist then, and I started with a clear goal. I wanted to be the Mike Royko of sports. That's really all I knew was Mike Royko. I grew grown up reading him as a kid, and I wanted to be like The great him. Chicago columnist. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to be like him in the sports world. Yeah. So why did you want to do journalism? I read the newspaper as a kid uh, because I was a huge Indiana Pacer fan. And my dad read the newspaper cover to cover. And so I started reading about the Indiana Pacers in the Indianapolis Star. And at some point when I was around 14, 15, I got out of the sports section and just stumbled across 
Royko's nationally syndicated column. And the first one I read made me go, holy cow, this guy's hilarious. This guy makes me think. And I just became this huge Mike Royko fan. When I went off to Ball State again, though, I, I didn't put it all together. And I originally was an accounting major. First semester getting a math you're class. One, you're one strange guy, man. <laughs> well, look, my dad had an accountant for his bar. And so you're talking to someone who knew virtually nothing about college. And so I, my dad had an accountant for his bar. I said, I'll be an accountant. Getting a math class. And it's like, whoa, I'm not going to be an accountant. Friend of mine, a couple years older, that went to high school with me, he's a journalism major at Ball State and says, dude, you read the paper nonstop. You love sports. You should be a sports writer. Made perfect sense to me. Wow. When did you write your first sports article, and what was it about? Very easy. I just like someone told you this answer or something. But uh, my senior year of college, Jeff George was a senior at the University of Illinois, and my first story was that Jeff George should leave Illinois for the pros. So I gave him that bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed. Yes, he left and was the number one pick. You always had this thing, obviously, for Jeff George. And you always felt that he got jobbed in his NFL career, didn't you? What, what I always felt is that I love Jeff George. I love his family. I love where we came from. I love what we did together. And so I always wrote about Jeff George with the clear, hey, guys, I love this dude. We're yeah. good friends. So take what I say. This is a friend talking about a friend. And so, uh, you know, as a friend, I felt like Jeff George, uh, if people fully understood him, uh, if people fully understood what, what made him tick, Jeff's really big on loyalty, and if he feels like he's experiencing any disloyalty, he checks out on you. And so, the where did that happen in the NFL? Well, okay. I'll tell you where it started. He he's the number one recruit in the country. He's the LeBron James of high school football, and he can go to any school in the country. And he goes to Purdue, hometown Purdue, uh, thinking, hey, I'm going to stay at home, be loyal to my home state. They talk to everybody at the university because him and his family are not stupid. Uh, Leon Burtonette was in some trouble when Jeff commits to Purdue. But they promise him, no, Leon Burtonette will be here your whole career. After Jeff's freshman year, they fire Leon Burtonette. That's the fr oh, man, I've been lied to. They've been disloyal. He bails on Purdue, ends up at Illinois. You get to the NFL, and it's a business, and they don't always tell you the truth. Yeah. Jeff doesn't respond well when people are dishonest with him and feels like the, the, uh, it's disloyal or they have to promise him something and it wasn't delivered. That's what The Colts were a poorly run franchise. He, he foolishly micromanages with Lee Steinberg to get drafted by the Colts, number one. He wanted to go play. Didn't work out at Purdue. Let me go back home again, lead my hometown franchise. Very foolish thing. If he had been a businessman, a smart person about his football, like John Elway, I don't want to play with the Ursays. Bob Ursay, are you kidding me? The poorly run franchise. 
Jeff, ego out of control, super talent. Oh, I can go carry an NFL franchise. It's much more complicated than that. And had he been thinking like the Elway, Jack Elway, led by coach that understood the business of football, thinking like the Mannings, Archie telling Eli, no, we ain't going to San Diego. <laughs> He's not thinking that way. He's going to be Superman and turn around his hometown franchise with Bob Ursay running it. Not, not going to happen. Uh, poorly run franchise. And it just spun out of control after two or three years or four years, and he goes to Atlanta. June Jones benches him. Jeff probably felt him and June Jones are very tight, good friends. Man, you told me you'd never bench me. Again, yeah. unreasonable expectations, feelings of disloyalty cause him to spin out of control. Uh, but I, listen, I, he's, he's a What's good— What's he doing now, Jeff George? Uh, he's in Indianapolis, uh, has some business ventures with his brothers, very tight with his family. Uh, he's got two boys. He's got three kids, two boys. One's a redshirt freshman in Illinois, who I think now is the backup quarterback at Illinois. The other son is at our powerhouse high school, is a sophomore, backup quarterback, just started in his growing spurt, now 6'1". Next year, next two years, he'll be a big-time football player. So he's a dad, businessman in Indianapolis. Do you feel like if Jeff George had gone to whatever, let's say Team X, whatever it is, if he had gone to the right place, would he be an all-time great? Oh, 100%. But, you know, he the all-time great thing was out the window after Atlanta. He, he had messed up things and things had messed up. Where I, the biggest mistake Jeff George made, he should have stayed in Minnesota for one more year. He, he Denny Green drafts Dante Culpepper, I think. Jeff should have stayed and played Dante's rookie season. Yeah. Don't immediately run off for the better contract in Washington. You got Randy Moss and Chris Carter, that offensive line, running game. Go really have a knockout 16-game season. Put Minnesota in a position to make a very tough choice on, a, I think, a 30-year-old quarterback at that time in his prime, playing 31, playing at a high level. He left. I think uh, Marty Schottenheimer, whoever was a coach in Washington, not the ideal situation. He got some money, but not. he didn't get to continue to play at a high level like he did for that second half of the Minnesota season. If he had put one more year like that together, I think he would have put – Five more years like that someplace else and would have been regarded as, you know, he could have been Rich Gannon. Rich Gannon had a great last six years of his NFL career. But could he have been the worker bee at football that Rich Gannon was? Yeah, I think the second half of or the end of Jeff's career, he turned into a worker. He He did. did prepare. He had his body in immaculate shape. He was a better teammate, Uh, and he did. He does like to prepare for football. He loves the game of football. The process of preparing for games was never his issue. With Jason Whitlock on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So let's transition a bit to uh, sort of the future of football. And... You and I have had a couple of conversations about this. You basically think that although football has some problems, 
that football is really getting a bad rap because people don't appreciate all of the things that football does for a young person and for people beyond that. But just give me your your thought about football maybe getting a bad rap and what you think of the game overall. Well, I think football certainly is getting a bad rap. Uh, I don't think its story is being told in proper context. I think that if you really understand American history and understand American culture and understand sports importance to American culture, and then if you understand what's going on globally, but uh, very acutely here in America, there's great upheaval globally and here in America. There is revolution going on, intellectual revolution, uh, social revolution, uh, people trying to change the structure of America. And, I mean, if you look at, just look at our presidential uh, election process and the candidates we have and all the issues in play and why the Tea Party exists and why Donald Trump exists, uh, none of this is by accident. And so I think as part of trying to change American culture, smart people uh, that I disagree with, but again, they're smart people. They want to push the conversation of the country in a direction that I'm not comfortable with. And football is getting caught up in that. Football is uh, the embodiment of American male establishment. It's highly masculine. It's a sport for men, played by men. Uh, <clears throat> it, it, and so I, I think football is under attack. And... Uh, you know, I think that people want to remove it as the greatest sports cultural influence in America. And I think this, there's been a process and a plan put in place that has been going on for several years, uh, but now people are starting to see it. And so the whole conversation about football is just so distorted and... I think the story about concussions exaggerated and not told in proper context. I think there's hyper, hyper focus on whatever negativity is related to football in terms of domestic violence is an American problem. It's not a football problem. And we've somehow reduced it to football. And so I look at what Why happened. is this happening? Again, I think... Football's under attack, and I think that uh, this highly, this masculine society, this male-first society that we have in America, people are trying to restructure it. There's, uh, and again, not all of it is negative, but I, I think the progressive movement uh is anti football and i think the progressive movement uh wants some of these masculine 
tent poles for American culture pulled down. And uh, football is is the most masculine. It's it's it, and and it has such an important place in America. I think people want to change that. You know, I, I I'm going to interrupt you, and I'm just going to tell you this. So, at our site, I just assigned one of our writers, Emily Kaplan, who lives in Chicago. I said, I would like you to find the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. And I want you to go to the high school there. And I want you to talk to the football coach. And I want you to talk to the players. And I want you to talk to the families and say, what role does football have here? Is football important? Does football really matter to everybody here in this community? Is it just simply an after-school thing, a diversion to the gangs and everything like that? So Emily has been there. She's doing some reporting. And... The game last week got canceled because one of the players on the team that she was covering got shot six times, sitting on his stoop in front of his house. And they were afraid if they played the game, there would be some retribution. And I said to myself, now, this is really serious. And this coach who she's dealing with is trying to save kids' lives right now. Yeah, He's trying to save kids' lives. And one of the things that Emily is looking into, and I don't know the answer yet, what would happen to these kids? And I'm not saying that football is some messiah. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that I think there are a lot of things that you have to look at more than just if you feel if this is a bad activity for the long-term health of this child. And I'm not convinced that it is. But there are other parts of this activity that also must be measured and must be considered before you say that football is bad. Peter, you've knocked it out of the park because now again, I'm just going to tell you where I started. Dad didn't graduate high school. Mother was a factory worker. My parents divorced when I was young, about four or five years old. Me, my mom, and my brother started out in the inner city. In the hood, little bitty apartment uh, in the hood. Again, I told my brother started playing football first. I fell in love with football going to the practices. My mother eventually takes a second job at a grocery store because our house got, our apartment got broken into and we moved to a working class suburb. Not a rich neighborhood, but a working class suburb. Factory workers and intact family. We move into an apartment there. Football is the reason why. Again, you're talking to someone that didn't know anything about college. No one in my family had gone off to college. Football is the reason why my eyes were open, like, oh, there's more opportunities in this world than what I was even remotely aware of. Football was the only way I was going to probably go to college. No one was paying for me to go to college. And then, not just my story, but the the friends, and the evolution of boys to men that I've seen over the last, I go to Ball State at 18, I'm now 49, that's 31 years. I've seen 18-year-old boys come out of some of the, one of my best friends shot in Detroit. The only reason why we got him as a recruit, because he got shot in Detroit uh, before his senior year of high school. He was a Big Ten recruit, came to Ball State because he got shot. This kid carried an Uzi when we were at Ball State. Jeez. I didn't know it until we got into a scrap with someone. He pops the trunk of his car and brings out a newsie, and I'm like, holy cow. 
this is this kid at 19, 20 years old. I know him now at 49, 50. He's one of the greatest dads, one of the greatest husbands, one of the greatest It's a good providers. thing he lives. Yes. One of the his he's got a son that's playing football in the uh at Syracuse. He's got a daughter that's a honor roll student at Michigan State. Successful 30-year This is a wonderful human being that I saw evolve through football. I could cite story after story of kid of kids wouldn't have gone to school if it wasn't for football. Wasn't interested in education if it wasn't for football. Football is a part of people's journey to civilization, evolution, and it transforms. It allows people to transform themselves, helps them transform, and it's an ugly process. And so people from uh, that have no... Uh, interaction with the inner city, no interaction with poor people, maybe well-intentioned, uh, great liberal people, but just don't know where people's journey starts and how ugly it might be. And again, I get in trouble for saying, look, I- I'm pro Greg Hardy getting a second, third, fourth chance. People get upset with me about that. It's because again, his journey started in a trailer park. And so it's it's not going to be as pretty as some of my friends. Can you imagine how Charles Haley would be treated today on Twitter? Charles Haley would be assassinated yes. today. He would never make it. He would never make it. I mean, and look, I'm no fan of Greg Hardy. Yeah. Okay. And I don't. I probably would never sign him in a million years if I were an owner. But I do believe. That if you look at the background of a lot of people, you're going to see incredible growth to even get to the point where they are. Thank you. You know? This is what... And so, when when I look at American society, we've taken away the draft and sending people to the military. Because that was part of... I'm sorry. That was part of the man-making part of society, the process. I look at football. You, you go into these inner cities... There's no fathers around. Who's the father? The coach. Who the assistant coaches? Who are the people instilling values that pay off 10, 15 years later? You may not see the immediate impact. And so again, football and the people that are involved in it, and all sports for the most part, but particularly in football, they're religious and they're conservative. And uh if you've have you ever seen the documentary Undefeated? No. Guy in Memphis, white dude in his 40s. I've heard of it. And Memphis goes to one of the worst ghettos in Memphis and starts coaching high school football and transforms lives. Religious guy, conservative guy, down in the trenches working with people in a real way through football. And they they show you right there in the documentary a kid that sits there and tells he's he's terrible. He's a terrible kid. And you see through one season of this documentary what football did. And and then they show you here he is five, six, seven years later. And he's a productive member of society with a whole different outlook on life. And it was because of football and because that football coach and that football program didn't give up on him. And so we can talk about CTE and all the bad things that go along with football. But we need room to talk about the good stuff. And there's been a hostility co- uh, created through the progressive sports media that has come into the sports media world 
without ever spending any time as a high school reporter, trained as journalist, people that, again, have had no real connection to the culture of sports have just run in and dominated the conversation about sports and mistreat people that have actually spent 10, 15, 30, 40 years covering sports in a fair way. They understand all of sports. And they're beating up, and I'm just going to keep it 100% real, they're beating up guys like Peter King and scaring everybody else off from writing anything positive about football. And so we can't even tell the complete story of football anymore. We can only talk about the negative because if you tell the positive, you'll get shredded over Twitter, shredded in some blog. And so it, it literally came to me, Peter, I, I'm just telling because I started putting all this together over the past few years, and it, it made I was like, now I get why Peter King was under this constant attack from just keeping it one hundred percent real from Deadspin and this super pro- progressive media. It was like they got to kill the guy at the top in order to send the message to the rest of football writers. <laughs> if you don't get on board with what we want done. We'll, we did it to Peter King. We'll do it to you. And I say that in all seriousness, Peter. Yeah. You put the work in uh, as a Cub reporter all the way through to build this great career. And we need someone like you at the top that has access to Roger Goodell and all the power to question them, write stories about them. And they don't all have to be... Uh, Hatchet jobs or or tearing into people. We need the access that you had was serving all of us. Other people could play different roles. They don't all have to be insiders. But it was like Bob Woodward from the Washington Post became a Washington insider and a different journalist than what he was at the beginning of his career when he took down Nixon. There's nothing wrong. He... At one point, he played one role where he was right. hyper-aggressive. And, try, and then it, as his uh, stature grew, he became a peer of political people. But he still has value because we need that insight. And so, again, you once were the young lion and went up and tore up the jungle. Now you're playing a different role. Let the other young lions come in and have a more adversarial relationship with the NFL while you give us a different perspective, there's value in that. It's important because if the NFL doesn't feel like they have a place where their voice can be properly heard, they just start backing away from everybody and shut it down. And so I look at these young people in the media that don't understand we all have a role to play. All the roles are important. And so, but and now we have every, you can only do one thing. You can only shred and dump on the NFL and tear them down. And it's not right. It's not fair. It's not healthy. And just as a black person who understands the power of football and has seen it transform a lot of young black men, I just look at Kaepernick and all these guys, and I just wonder if they know how good football really as an industry has been for us and to us, again, it's created more wealth for black men than any other industry I've known. And to me, more opportunity because, again, football, if you don't make it all the way to the NFL, 
at least you have a chance to make it through college. And that opens up doors for me. Or let's say you don't go to college. Doesn't it help you in high school being on a team, having responsibility to the guy next to you on the line? I mean, Peter, I looked at when, when Baltimore was rioting after the Freddie Gray deal. The number one thing I, I saw all those kids out in the street, right? And and I and I literally thought, man, when I was a kid, I was so tired from football practice. <laughs> no way I could be out in the street doing this. Literally, yeah. I mean, they run you to death. You're hungry. You go home and you sleep and blah. blah, blah. I go. I go. What these kids don't have any men in their lives pushing them from three p.m. to seven p.m. So that they're too tired to be out because that's what I was. I was run to death from playing sports and doing all kinds of other activities. I didn't have time to do dumb stuff. Finishing up with Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports. Now, when I say finishing up, I mean we could probably do seven hours. I want to ask you a little bit about what you think of Roger Goodell and what you think of the future of Roger Goodell right now. I think he's in a little bit of trouble, and I think he's been compromised by the controversies. But I haven't given up on him. I think he can rebound and pivot and move to a better place. Is that better place, they just spent $100 million or committed $100 million to try to learn more about CTE, and not only that, but I believe that about $40 million of that is going to go to entrepreneurs to invent a better helmet. And not only that, not only to invent a better helmet, but I remember a couple of years ago in training camp with the Cardinals, Patrick Peterson said, it reminded me of the NRA thing where the only way you'll get me to get rid of my gun is to get yep. it out of my dying hands. Patrick Peterson said, I've been wearing this helmet since I went to LSU. I love this helmet. I don't want to get rid of it. Guys get enamored of their helmets. And in my opinion, I know this is going to sound absurd, but one of the things the NFL needs to do is to get together with the Players Association and enforce them to wear the helmet with the best technology. But anyway, I I, I didn't want to steal that. But what do you think long-term Goodell has to do to kind of get his grip back on the job and to stay long-term. I, I think you, you're actually onto something with the helmets. It leads me to a better uh, uh, the point I would like to make. He needs a better relationship with the NFL Players Association. And I get beat up when I defend Gene Upshaw, but I don't care. Gene Upshaw had the proper relationship with NFL ownership. It was a partnership. He was a former player, didn't have this over-the-top hostility towards ownership, understood that, you know, hey, football's rough and tough, but at the level of money these guys are making, it's sort of moving towards a fair exchange, and we would be better off billionaires and millionaires partnering up, and how can we make this business better, more safer, more profitable for all of us? And so, again, Roger Goodell has to get out of the discipline business, because that puts him at odds with the players. He gets out of that. He he continues to work on the concussion front and the helmet deal. But I think maybe just as important, the NFL needs to aggressively take charge of telling 
football story. They need to take ownership of all of football and start using their players, former and current, to start telling football story. They got guys like Ray Lewis that can tell this story. Here, here's another people. I, I'll defend Ray to, and I, I don't think Ray's been a perfect person. I don't know what happened in Atlanta, but I do know this. Football has helped Ray Lewis become a better person. Football, I think, saved Ray Lewis's life. Without question. And so you take the Ray Lewis's and other players. Because it's not just black players. It's white players as well. They all got these stories. And you start telling and giving people the understanding how much wealth has been transferred to the black community through football. How many scholarship opportunities. Because it's not even just big-time Division One. Football provides opportunities, NAIA, all kinds of schools, taking guys out of some really rough situations. It's almost like what the military used to do through the draft. You take an 18-year-old kid, put him out in the stick somewhere for three or four months during basic training, ship him off overseas, open his eyes to the world. And then two, three years later, you drop him back off in his hometown. He's like, oh, I see the world in a much different way. And that's what football does. It it. I'm just it took a meathead like me and really educated me and set me on a path towards just so much a greater understanding of, of America, the world, my place in it, what I was capable of doing, what we as African Americans are capable of doing. It, it teaches so many values. And again, it's certainly not perfect. And any coach of mine, particularly in college, that's listening to that, listening to this, is going, <laughs> Whitlock was a headache. He was a locker room lawyer. But damn, he's admitting that we helped him along the way. And they did. Paul Shadell, Lawrence Cooley, great coach of mine. He's passed on. I love the guy. Even Dave Magazine, the coach in the NFL for a long time. He coached me. He was my offensive line coach at Ball State the first two years. Hated that guy's guts my first two years at Ball State and for a long time. But he helped me. And, again, it's like sausage, man. You don't want to see how it gets made, but it tastes good on the other side. That's what football is. Jason Whitlock, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me, and uh, we'll have to do another three hours one day. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate you having me. This is the MMQB Podcast. Before we go, a few thoughts about what everybody's calling a controversy, and I call it an embarrassment of riches. That's the Dallas Cowboys quarterback situation. Everybody wants to know after this bye week, who should Jerry Jones and Jason Garrett install at quarterback? The longtime incumbent, Tony Romo, or this year's quarterback wonderkind, Dak Prescott from Mississippi State, who's 5-1 and one replacing Tony Romo. Now, I don't know about you, but when I root for a team, and I really only root for one, that's the Boston Red Sox, but when I root for a team, If you told me that I could have Clayton Kershaw and David Price as my first and second pitchers, I don't think I'd be very worried about, well, who's the number one and who's number two? Just throw them out there. And the same thing with this. At some point this season, the Dallas Cowboys are going to need, in the last 10 weeks of the season, they're going to need Dak Prescott and Tony Romo, obviously, They can't take Dak Prescott out of the lineup right now. He's just playing too well. Has a quarterback rating well over 100, thrown one interception so far 
in four preseason games and six regular season games. It's it's insane how good he is. And by the way, talking to Prescott this week, one of the most interesting things that he said, he sounded just like Carson Wentz. One of the most interesting things was he said, hey, it's just football. I think everybody on the outside, including me sometimes, wants to make the NFL much bigger than it actually is. But if you just realize this is the same game you've played since you were in seventh grade, you're going to be okay if you're good enough. Dak Prescott certainly is good enough. So what I say to all the Dallas Cowboy fans out there and all of you listening to this, don't be so caught up in who's going to play. It's probably going to be Prescott, but if for some unforeseen reason, uh, Jason Garrett says my guy is is Tony Romo, big deal. You now have what no other team in the NFL has, and that's two quarterbacks who tomorrow could win a playoff game for you. Nobody else has that. Maybe New England, but really nobody else has proven winners at that position. Multiple winners. And right now, if I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, I just sit back and enjoy it. Thanks to my guests, Rich Eisen and Jason Whitlock, this week. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my interviews with Drew Brees, John Elway, and Michael Bennett of the Seattle Seahawks. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit of the MMQB. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors. SeatGeek, ZipRecruiter, Stamps.com, and Movement Watches. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.